welcome to the Introduction to Clinical Research podcast. My name is Debbie, I use she, her pronouns. I work in clinical research and I have decided to explain it to my friend Elise. Say hello, Elise. Hello, Elise. Hi, everyone. My name is Elise. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I don't work in clinical research. So I'm here to be explained to. Just wanted to let you know about the website. Intro to clinicalresearch.podbean.com. Check it out for transcripts and other information. Enjoy the episode. Perfect. We're here to pull the curtain back on medical research so that hopefully you feel a little more informed. You feel like you can trust the outcomes of research. Um, maybe you just learn a little thing. There's a lot that we can discuss. We're going to take it bit by bit. And today we're talking about everybody's favorite topic, research governance, which basically means what rules are there. Now, I'm going to say right at the top, neither Elise nor I are lawyers. No. But we are going to be talking about the rules in terms of laws and things that aren't law. So nothing that we say should be taken as like legal advice or legal requirements. We're kind of discussing it from a lay person's point of view. Yep. What Debbie said. Cool. So because of the risk to humans of poorly conducted research, there are quite strict rules about how clinical trials should be conducted. I think rightly so. Now, there's variety in the rules depending on whether the research is interventional or not. So the level of stuff that you're doing to the patient, right? If you're looking at a patient versus if you're jabbing them with a needle, the level of risk is different. So the level of control is also different. There's also variability depending on where you are. Because as we know, each country sets their own rules. Some regions set their own laws as well. The law of one country cannot be legally applied in another country. But the nature of our global world, right? A lot of research is done internationally. There's often good cooperation and collaboration between and across borders in terms of research. So we want to be sure that the results can be transferred between countries. So if the research is conducted where Elise lives in the USA, for example, we want to be sure that the results are of good quality, patients are safe, and that we can draw valid conclusions from the data, no matter where we're based in the world. So where I am in the UK or any other any other place. In my experience, I have been lucky enough. So at the moment, I live in the UK and I work here and I have worked in a few countries in Europe, uh, not all of them. Italy, Germany, Spain, the Netherlands, Poland. I lived in Australia and worked there as well as in New Zealand. And I've also worked in the USA and India. So I haven't been everywhere. I'd love to. But I've, I've got a, a relatively good spread of where I've lived and worked. In my experience, I estimate about 90 to 95 percent of clinical research is the same no matter where you are. Studies, research... It's almost always at some point in the drug development cycle done internationally, particularly if we're talking about larger phase three studies. So, Debbie, just yeah, real quick. It's been a it's been a hot minute since we've talked about phase three, phase two, all that stuff. So phase three studies. Mm -hmm. um, that is the point where it's usually bigger studies, bigger uh, sample sizes. And Correct. Tell us just a, a quick reminder of kind of what characterizes a phase three study. Yeah. So phase one, are usually your first in human, your early phase studies, is the drug safe. Phase two is when you will first test the drug in patients who have the disease. 
Phase one is normally done in healthy volunteers. Um, and phase two will also be focused on safety and some preliminary initial efficacy data. Does it work? Phase three is really when you are looking to find out whether your drug works And the way that that is done is with a large group of people studied with the disease in question, taking the treatment or having the intervention or whatever the study design is. The reason that these studies are most likely to be multinational at phase three is because if you want to recruit 5,000 patients, it might be hard to find 5,000 patients with the disease that you're looking at in one country. And also your phase three study or phase three studies, plural, are likely to be the backbone of your submission for your approval. They're kind of a big chunk of the data because they'll prove whether the drug will work. Now, you want to be able to get your drug licensed in as many countries as possible. And in order to do that, you have to demonstrate that your drug works on the type of people in the countries that you want to sell your drug in. And the easiest way to do that is to test your drug in those countries. So if I only did research in America, in the USA, I would have a good time selling my drug in the USA, but I would have a bad time selling it in Japan or China. Because although there are Japanese and Chinese people, people with that heritage in the USA, statistically speaking, you could run a whole study without a single person of Japanese heritage on your study. Whereas if you do the study in Japan, you're going to have data on how it works in Japanese people. And not only in Japanese people, but in a variety of Japanese people because you'll probably have more than one patient from that country on board. Okay. Okay. So phase three studies are the bigger ones, offer many thousands of patients, can run for many years and are really there to prove whether your drug works or not. So that's why they're often big international, multi-country, multi-hospital studies. Good question. Thanks. Right. So we know that each country has their own law, but we also know the advantages of everybody kind of working similarly in alignment. Um, And to facilitate that, there is a global standard that exists that should be applied. This is called ICHGCP. That's the abbreviation. It stands for the International Council on Harmonizations Good Clinical Practice Guideline. Long History lesson short, because Elise, I can see you want to ask the question of what do all those big stupid words mean? Well, I know what harmonization means musically. (laughs) Uh, Yes. Yes. Everybody has to sing. No, 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 no. That's not that's not what we're looking at. So quick history lesson. Everybody wants to do research well, um, but it was identified. um, I think it was in 1991, something like this. So quite recently. I'm old, so it feels recently um, that everybody wants to do the right things, but they're all doing it a bit differently. And we wanted to get alignment or harmonization. Right. And how they did that was by setting up a conference, the International Conference on Harmonization. And it was made up of the USA, Europe, Japan, um, the World Health Organization were involved and other other agencies as well, other countries internationally kind of chipped in or, or you know, um, sat with their, their ear to the door being involved, but perhaps not, not debating so strongly at the table. There's probably better words for this. But anyway, the idea of the International Conference on Harmonisation was to talk about what can we all agree should be the minimum standards for clinical research conduct. 
and they had a ton of meetings and loads of discussion. And the first good clinical practice guideline that set out the minimum standards that those three countries would expect for research was published in 1996. So it took five years of discussion and debate to reach a level that everybody was happy with. Now, it has been amended since then. We're currently on revision two. Revision three has been written and is out for public consultation at the moment. So sometime international conference on harmonization was changed to the international council on harmonization because it wasn't just a one-time conference right it's an ongoing activity to better protect patients to make sure that research is done consistently following best practices and also that it moves with the times right because something that was cutting edge in 1996 isn't anymore many things have changed because of the technology around a load of stuff that we're doing right research needs to move with the times and gcp is a tool that we have to try and try and keep us all all honest and on the right track gcp good clinical practice it's so on the nose i'm so used to government acronyms and i know this isn't governmental strictly but like government acronyms because that's where i work being like so <laughs> i don't know like doctored and tailored to like be nebulous to be nebulous but also like clever mm -hmm. that like to just say good clinical practice and like i would i can imagine our comms department being like how do you know it's good you can't claim good call it clinical practice regulations because that's neutral mm. right uh, so it's just mm -hmm. so funny to like harmonization good clinical practice like it just it names it it's like this is what we're gonna do we're gonna do good clinical practice with like i don't know how much concern over the the yeah. philosophical debate over what is good. Zero. Yeah, because they tell you what's good. Ah, they define good. it for you. They're like, this is what you need to do. <laughs> Excellent. And I mean, the, the other thing that, that should be noted uh, about GCP is, and anyone that works in clinical research will know this, there's a world of grey in GCP. It tells you what you need to do, but it doesn't tell you how. So you can interpret GCP quite a few different ways. And I'm sure that we'll come we'll come on to maybe a, a deep dive into it at some point and look at some of the variability. But it was fun. In, in a past life, I used to be an auditor and I'd travel around and you would assess different sites, different companies on how they would comply with GCP laws, regulations, expectations, etc. And you saw so many different interpretations of the same sentence because it it will say things like um, patient safety should be paramount. OK, cool. How do, how do you prove that? And there are a lot of industry practices that are kind of, oh, we've just done it that way always. That doesn't mean it's the best way. And I think the new revision of GCP is really driving towards maybe not defining it better, but actually getting people to think about why they do things. And just because you've always done it that way isn't necessarily the best answer. Anyway, interestingly, saying it's on the nose, there are also other GXPs, right? So there's good manufacturing practice. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, there's good laboratory practice, GLP. There's good documentation practice, GDP. There's a whole bunch of them. They're all great. And this is all for medical stuff or for in general? Because like I can imagine good manufacturing practice be like, are we talking about the manufacturing of drugs and devices? Yes. Or yes. are we talking about like mm -mm. clothing manufacturing? Mm -mm. No, or... we're talking about okay. drugs and devices manufacturing. And look, good laboratory practice applies not only to research, but um, to kind of any laboratory work that includes research samples but like if you're if you have a blood sample taken at the hospital that lab 
I can pretty much guarantee will be working to GLP at some level or another. Okay, but not like research labs like Los Alamos where... There, oh, that means nothing to you. <laughs> uh, that's a that's a national lab in the United States where um, scientists work on things dealing with radiation, for example. Yeah, good laboratory practice, from my understanding, applies predominantly to medical laboratories. Okay, not not like all other laboratories. Got you. Yeah. So, like Joel, if Joel ever listens to this, our friend, he can probably correct us. Who works in a medical lab? I imagine has a passing familiarity with GLP. Gotcha. Anyway, so GCP, this uh, guideline on standardization, harmonization, but it is just a guideline. That means it's not legally enforceable on its own. But interestingly, importantly, many countries have written ICH GCP into their own laws. Okay, now how that's done in terms of taking a guideline and putting it into law varies depending on where you are in the world, right? Uh, in the EU, it was initially done via an EU directive. In the UK, we have a th- we have Acts of Parliament, our lovely old-fashioned Parliament, and they can also implement statutory instruments, which is just another another type of um, legislative paper that you can have that makes something legally binding. And in the USA, you have your federal regulations, the CFR Code of Federal Regulations. Code of Federal Regulations, yes. So it's written into law in a, in a lot of these places. And the advantage of this as a standard is that we can trust the results of research conducted in other countries because they're done to this high and internationally agreed standard. And it is, although it was initially driven, shall we say, by the EU, USA and Japan, it is now very widely accepted and legislated alongside. So even if ICHGCP in itself isn't legally binding, it is often referenced in the law of the country that is legally binding. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Any questions? No. Cool. GCP has two central purposes. The protection of the people that are involved in the research, the human subjects, to make sure that their rights are protected. So their right to privacy, their right to consent to participate, their right to withdraw, their right to data protection, all of their rights and their safety, their well-being. So medically, are they as safe as they can be? Are they cared for? Are we abusing patients on research studies or are we actually taking care of them? So that's one of the central purposes of GCP is all about the human people. And the other is ensuring that we can trust the data collected during the study. Now, usually, when you talk about GCP, most people understand the reason for the first one. Yes. You've got to make sure people are okay. Everybody cares about people. Yes. The second one, ensuring that we can trust the data and, and draw valid scientific conclusions from it, I think it's a little bit harder maybe to understand or maybe not as clear to everybody. The reason that it is important to get good quality data, data that comes from real patients and is recorded in a reliable way with a kind of chain of custody that is statistically robust that you can draw valid scientific conclusions from. The reason that's so important is because otherwise you've put patients at risk for no reason. Right. You could run a whole research study and if you don't write down the data points that you're collecting as you go, why did you bother? Right. You've put patients at risk for no reason. You've got no outcome at the end of it. And even if you get the outcomes and other places, like everyone in the community is like, well, we can't trust this because you didn't follow good clinical practice, then you've come to those conclusions and put people at risk for outcomes that cannot be applied. Correct. And someone may have to repeat your research which means putting more patients at risk and it will take time. 
that we know in we know in in you know medical care time is often vital for for survival and well-being so sometimes we don't have that time so it's really important that we get this kind of stuff right first time and gcp is is quite a good standard at talking about those two things and the balance between them and it does highlight that the right safety and well-being of the patient is always paramount if you have to choose between data and the patient you choose the patient Mm-hmm. but you should also be thinking about your data. You shouldn't just be, you know, swanning through the world, being happy that, oh, my patients are really well cared for, but I didn't write any of my data down. Oh, well. All right. Makes sense. Now, although we have this fantastic global standard that most countries, not all of them, but most countries are working to follow, there are regulatory differences between countries, Okay. So, for example, in the USA, GCP dictates that there should be ethics committees and these are um groups of people that are experts but also lay persons so your average joe on the street and they'll look at a research study and say yeah this is okay this is not too burdensome from the patients you're not abusing them it's ethically adequate but in the usa the group of people that does that work is called an institutional review board they meet the same purpose they do the same job as an ethics committee but they're called something different right Yes, I'm familiar from my days in academia. With IRBs. Uh, With IRBs, yes. Institutional Review Boards, IRBs. Cool. There may be differences in timelines for study setup. There may be differences in reporting requirements, like how frequently you have to tell the Ethics Committee or the IRB what you're up to. But there's, in my experience, there's more in common than there are differences in that you will have to tell the Ethics Committee or the IRB what you're up to at some point during the study. And in most places, it's at least annually. Okay, Um, and in in some countries, my understanding in the USA for the IRB is you have to resubmit annually and kind of re-up your approval, whereas in the UK you submit an annual safety report. So you tell them what you're up to every year, how the patients are going, what's the data, what you've been doing. There's an annual requirement to notify your ethics committee or IRB how it works practically slightly different. So that's what I mean when I say there's more in common than there is different. Okay. Okay. So well, I'm thinking about IRBs and the need to report and like you said in the US there are IRBs and then elsewhere there are ethics committees are they do other places have also like specific use like versions of ethics committees kind of like the US has IRBs do other countries have something that is the equivalent of an IRB that is called something besides just ethics committee does that does the question make sense and also just as kind of a note, like thinking about IRBs and how localized they are, yeah. I'm just curious, right, if that's something that's true across the board, too, um, because I know, for example, from, like I said, my time in academia, like when I was at a certain university, I submitted my studies to that university's IRB, like not mm-hmm. a regional, not a government body. It was just people from that university who oversaw everything that had human participants being done at that university so i imagine every hospital every university every place that's doing research like how do they have do they have shared irbs do they how does it work internationally yeah okay so america is not a very good yardstick for this sorry usa shocking um but there is a great deal of variability and i think it depends depends a little bit on healthcare systems and the level of government involvement and oversight so in the uk we have central ethics committees So what that means is if you want to conduct a clinical research study in the UK, you will submit centrally and 
your ethics committee is not associated with your hospital or your university or wherever you are. They are overseen by central bodies. Uh, There are slightly different requirements in the UK, depending on whether you're in England, Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland. But again, there's so much more in common than there is different. Um, But they're not... It's not going to be like, oh, you're the universities of University of Edinburgh's ethics committee. You might go to the Edinburgh ethics committee, but you could have a submission from Aberdeen and it go to Edinburgh's ethics committee. You could have a submission from Cornwall and it go to London's ethics committees. They all work to the same set of standards in the UK and it all goes through the same like submissions process for for that ethics approval. Most other countries call them ethics committees that makes sense with some variability in the uk they're called research ethics committees RECs, which i think is quite a nice abbreviation in australia they're called hrec human research ethics committees australia has a bit of a hybrid model in that it's got some central ethics committees and some that operate more like a like a local irb but even in the us you've got local irbs and you've got central irbs you've got a kind of hybrid model that way and where you submit to may depend slightly on your institution's requirements, but it may also depend on what your sponsor company work if you're doing commercial research. And they may have a very good experience with a particular central IRB. And they know that, okay, if I submit to that central IRB, they're going to review my study in X number of days. Most countries that I've worked in, most European countries, either have a hybrid like local central model or an entirely centralised model. Um, So a hybrid local central model might have like a local ethics committee consider the practicality of that site doing the study. Okay, so for each of your sites, if you've got a site in Munich, you've got a site in Frankfurt, you've got a site in Berlin, the local ethics committees to those will say this site, this doctor can or can't do it. And the Central Ethics Committee will look overall, is the study good? Okay. Right? So there's kind of the local pieces are looked at locally, the central pieces are looked at centrally. And I can completely understand the logic for that. But a a centralised model is often more desirable, and in my opinion, better, because it takes away the local conflict of interest, for one. And for two, it makes sure that all of the sites in a country are having the same standard applied to them. And if you have a centralised body like the HRA, the Health Research Authority in the UK, that oversees all of the ethics committees, they should all be operating to the same standards. So that means that no matter where you submit your research to, no matter which ethics committee it ends up going to, you're getting the same high quality level of review involving experts and average Joes looking at your research and giving you a really valid helpful opinion yeah that's all super interesting i honestly like reflecting as you were talking i was like man i don't actually know how different irbs work in the u.s like i only really know from my experience doing research in my field which was not medical right and so um there was really really no risk for the most part, involved in any of the studies. And so it was very easy to get things passed through a university IRB because it's like, it's a public forum. I can look at what people are saying and get my data. And so there's no risk involved. And so I imagine that like, you know, I know like thinking about all the complicated like ways that universities are classified and all these things and like that there's separate campuses for medical research and all this Mm -hmm. stuff. I'm sure that the IRBs operate differently Mm -hmm. across these things, but I don't know anything about how that works and that's okay we don't have to like deep dive into like how how (laughs) irbs work or anything but it's just fascinating to think how little yeah we as a public know about that kind of stuff in general yeah and also interestingly i think particularly when it comes to medical research 
many people now know more than they did two, three years ago. Because in my experience, I have never been more popular with my friends <laughs> asking me questions about medical research than I was during mm-hmm. the peak of COVID. COVID. Yeah. Because people people could see that these new treatments were coming out and wanted to know where they were coming from. So that is not to say that it's entirely transparent and that we know everything about it because demonstrably we don't. And there is a difference between right academic research and medical research. And it's different in your country to my country to any other country. But the overarching aim of an ethics committee is to check whether the study is OK for the patients that are going to be involved. And if it's going to burden them too much, right, they're going to look at that risk benefit and they're going to look at it independently or they should be independent. Um, that's the that's the goal to give that opinion to say yes, this is this is good research, this is going to be helpful, or no, actually, you can't just do that to patients. That's not okay. Cool. Cool. Okay. Some countries also have more detailed requirements on data protection. I know that it's something that I think everyone outside the EU kind of shakes their fist at us for, because I say us, not technically anymore, I wish. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> because the EU rules on data protection are stringent. So often if you're like, you may notice this if you're if you're on the website... If you're inside or outside the EU, like what you can see, what you can do may vary, which is data protection. Super interesting. Insurance requirements. In some countries, you have to get certain types of insurance to be able to do the study so that if the pa- if the patients are injured or uh, have a bad time as part of their participation in the research, they get compensation, they get all of their medical bills covered, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, in most countries, you have to have that insurance. In some countries, you have to submit it as part of the package. In others, you just have to have it available. So it, it depends. And there are also variables in terms of the specifics of the types of approvals that are required before you can start your research. So every country that I've worked in expects there to at least be an ethics review, that ethics committee or IRB review. And they all require to a greater or lesser extent some kind of submission to the government to let them know that the research is going to happen. So in the UK, you will submit to the MHRA and they will tell you whether you can or cannot go ahead within a certain time frame that's set by the law. In the US, you submit to the FDA. And if you don't hear from them within, I think it's 30 days, you can go ahead. It's a thing called tacit approval. In Australia, or at least this was the case when I was working there up till 2016, you notified the Therapeutic Goods Administration, the TGA, but they didn't give you an approval or anything else. They just went, yeah, cool, okay. So there are differences there. Okay, so that's the level of kind of harmonization and alignment for medical, usually drug and devices research, which is what I'm um, familiar with. For other types of research, often there's less harmonization because the research is less likely to be international. Okay, for example, we know that the standard of care given for certain diseases can be very different from one country to the next, which actually can make it difficult to do international research if you want to compare your new intervention to standard of care. Standard of care could be 20 different things in 20 different countries, right? So that means it might not make sense to compare the two if you're looking at success versus standard of care. It would be like comparing chalk and cheese. One of them you might want to eat. One of them you're going to draw on a whiteboard, blackboard with. Chalk and cheese. It's an idiom. Is that a common thing that people say in, in the UK? I don't know if it's common in the rest of the UK, but my parents said it all the time. It's like comparing ah. chalk and cheese because they're not the same. <laughs> they have different uses, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I, I just have absolutely never heard that phrase before. Wow. We, I mean, we, we, we use apples and oranges. Okay. Which... Yeah, that's terrible because they're both fruits. 
They're both fruit. But you'd both eat, you'd eat both of them. You wouldn't eat chalk. <laughs> uh, well, actually, I say that one of my friends who was pregnant, she ate chalk when she was pregnant. So yeah, well, maybe... don't you eat chalk? To, like, I mean, isn't like essentially uh, like tums and things like that for heartburns, just like chalk. Look, <laughs> you can prove anything with facts. <laughs> oh no. Uh, no okay okay so we've outlined kind of some different levels of quote-unquote regulation right so you've got the law that is legally binding in your country you've got guidance which something like gcp is international and, and is all about kind of getting everybody to work the same way and then there may be kind of further down the hierarchy things like policy or expectations uh, like a protocol that is written for you to follow to do your study. The protocol itself isn't legally binding, but the approvals will reference that protocol. So you should follow that protocol. Now, there are situations where you can deviate from a protocol if you need to save a patient, for example. If the protocol says you must give this drug every 12 hours and the patient's having an allergic reaction to the drug, you're not going to give them the drug the next 12 hours, right? Um, but the expectation is that you follow that protocol. So there's lots of different levels of rules in research. We've not really dived into any of them that deep. There's probably about 14,000 episodes that we could do on this. Maybe we'll loop back to it in the future. But I wanted to talk about what happens if someone breaks the rules. So, Elise, what do you think might happen if somebody breaks the rules? Oh, well, I suppose they could lose their right to conduct clinical research yeah absolutely and i think how that would look would depend on who the rule breaker was right yeah i guess that's that's a very vague <laughs> a very vague thing to say but um you know it depends on what you're what you're violating too right um a statutory violation or a, a legal violation of the law mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. versus a company or mm. institution-based rule that follows GCP, uh, as an expert, I use the acronyms now instead of saying good clinical practice. <laughs> um, but if it violates uh, GCP but doesn't violate law, there might be different kinds of consequences. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also worth acknowledging the the difference in consequences that affect different groups of people, right? Not everybody's going to be treated equally in front of the law. What? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! I've never heard of that before. You mean there's? Don't come at me with your sarcasm. <laughs> so, if it's law, that means that the people who break it, whether that's like the pharmaceutical company, researchers, doctors, whoever, can be punished with fines and disbarment from involvement in future research, or like a custodial sentence. Right? What a custodial sentence? Go to prison. Okay. I should stop using big words. <laughs> Listen, I have Sorry. a great vocabulary. I you just... do. You do. It's just, it's one of those things that's like, I think it's like the legal jargon, right? Oh, a custodial sentence. And then if you've if you've never not known that word, you don't know that people don't know it. Yeah. So, yeah, no judgment. My apologies. Historically, most regulatory agencies, the FDA, for example, have disbarred investigators. So either... They forbid them from doing future medical research, but they can keep their medical license. So they can be a regular doctor, not a research doctor, or they lose their medical license altogether. That probably has to do with how egregious it was, how intentional it was, things like that, or? Yes, and also... How white you are. (laughs) And also whether their bad behaviour was solely related to the research bit 
or whether it was poor medical practice. I see. Okay. Also, traditionally, regulators have fined pharma companies. What to you and I would sound like a big pile of money, but to pharma companies is not. Like some millions? Yeah, cool, fine. Their profits are in the billions. So Right. They probably have a pile of money that they just like reserve for. This is to pay our legal fines. Um, yes, I would imagine so. The number of custodial or prison sentences is very low globally and has been very low. I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing because I don't think that sending people to prison solves anything. That's just me. But, and also, I think it's really difficult if, if there's malpractice by the pharma company, who do you send to prison? Because it's if it's a corporation misbehaving, you can't send the corporation to prison. Right. So that's why pharma companies often get fined and you're more likely to send an individual doctor or researcher to jail because it's easier to punish an individual than a... I'm gesticulating. Yes, a classic conundrum of corporations and one of the many reasons why it's very troubling that corporations in the US are treated as individual people with rights under the law. But whatever. It's, again, not a legal podcast. (laughs) Hmm. The other thing that's worth noting is enforcement of the law is only possible if there are organisations investigating and reporting on non-compliance. So, government body. And I would say, in my experience, governments do not always invest enough in any of the agencies, not just in in medical research, but environmental agencies or water purity agencies or anything like that they do not always invest enough in those agencies to be effective at overseeing and managing their area of compliance absolutely similarly if the rules are more like guidelines like gcp right then no enforcement action can be taken unless that bit of gcp is referenced in the law and enforcement in this case no legal enforcement can be taken but someone could still be fired for example or yeah for sure uh, shunned by their peers <laughs> i don't know if that's great shout yes and you mentioned before as well when, when we said right what what happens if someone breaks the rules i'm doing uh, the little bunny ears inverted commas for the rules uh, quotation marks yes bunny ears <laughs> Bunny ears. I've never actually... Genuinely? Yeah. They're bunny ears. Have you never done the thing in a photograph where you put your fingers... Well, sure. That I call that bunny ears, but I don't... When I when I say, like, air quotes mm. around things, we call them air quotes or quotation marks or quote, 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 to indicate that we don't call these... We don't call it bunny ears when we're doing it to indicate... It's just because you're not as cute as we mm. are. That's yeah, I'm well, actually... Mm. Well, don't <laughs> well actually me. The whole of the no, USA. I was agreeing with you. I was agreeing with you in the most uh, mansplaining way possible. I started by saying, well, actually, to say I agree. I agree. Okay. You put me on the defensive with the well, actually, because I, I'm used yes, to it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Okay, okay. When we say quotation mark the rules, it could be that it's like a company policy. And yeah, for sure, you can get fired. You can get misconducted out the door. And that may, depending on what you were fired for, then preclude you from getting future employment. And in a research community where most people know each other, yeah, it it could absolutely lead to some kind of shunning of this century. Yes, that's unethical Earl. Don't hire him. <laughs> oh, how do you know unethical Earl? I used to work with <laughs> I just, him. Uh, he, he's got a big reputation. It's international, clearly. Okay, the final topic that I wanted to come on to, and before we do that, actually, any questions, Elise? Sorry, I should have paused. No, no questions. The final topic that I wanted to come on to, and this is something that I think in the future we're going to, well... I want to dive into more because this is I'm going to say that it's one of my favorite things to talk about and it's going to sound really dark when we get into it but I think it's something important that we should talk about more yes is the acknowledging the fact that the regulatory framework that we have today the rules the guidelines etc has been built over time historically there have been cases in the last hundred years plus 
where something in research has gone <laughs> quite drastically wrong, sometimes due to error, sometimes due to, you know, we'll look back and go, well, that was obvious. Why did you do that? Sometimes due to, you know, like malpractice of an individual or a group of people just being terrible. We've learned lessons and then a piece of legislation or some guidance or some kind of international statement has been created to try and prevent that same thing from happening again. This is something that I I, I, I did a few posts on the, the Instagram on like the history of clinical research and, and kind of the terrible cases and, and, and what lessons we've learned and what regulations we've ended up with as a result. So just a couple of quick examples, but I think this is something we're going to dive into in the future. In the USA in 1937, if you can imagine history that goes that far back. No, we don't cover that era of history in US history classes. No, mm-hmm. I imagine not. Everything stops after reconstruction from the Civil War. Okay, cool. I wish I were joking, Debbie. <laughs> well, look, I don't think British education is necessarily any better because we spent so long on Rome and the Roman Empire. We spent so long on the Tudors and Stuarts. So Henry VIII's wives, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. A wild <laughs> amount of time on castles. Wow. Yeah, but not not so much weirdly on the the empire and the colonization and and murder and transatlantic slave trade and stripping of resources from a bunch of countries internationally. I can't imagine why we weren't taught that at school. It's amazing how much how much education as a white person <laughs> you have to do for yourself uh, upon becoming an adult and realizing that everything you were taught in school is like the sanitized <laughs> and I, I don't white know. It's just, I've, I've talked. Yeah, mm-hmm. I've been talking about this a lot recently and specifically about Native American and indigenous populations in the U.S. and how little of that history is taught. Mm. Anyway, we we dive, we digress. OK, so in the USA in 1937, a pharmaceutical company, S.E. Massengill, Massengill, who knows, had a successful sulfonilamide antibiotic. Bless you. Mm, okay hilarious it's a type of antibiotic it was particularly used for the treatment of streptococcal infections and it was in the form of a tablet now streptococcal infection you're probably going to know as strep throat or a sore throat yes have you ever had that it sucks it's painful doesn't it feel like swallowing razor blades it sure does the only worse sore throat i've ever had was mono oh same i had it at university that was oh suck it was so bad so imagine that and someone gives you a tablet to swallow. Ow. Right? So here's a good idea. Let's turn our tablet into a liquid suspension. And they logically thought that's going to be easier for people with a sore throat, particularly children. Sure. Let's make it taste nice as well because kids love medicine that tastes nice. And I know this because I still remember the banana flavoured amoxicillin antibiotic that I had as a child. No, no, don't give me that face. Elise is pulling a face, everybody. <laughs> that sounds horrible. But it's delicious. You're wrong. You're wrong. Wow. Just so wrong. No one's ever been more wrong. Okay. Okay. Anyway. Hilarious. We must stop deviating. Keep us on track, Elise. You've asked a person with diagnosed with ADHD to keep you on track. <laughs> What's my reason? I'm just I'm just the chatty Kathy. <laughs> sorry. Not sorry. Okay, so logical idea, right? Take a tablet for people who are suffering with something that makes it hard to swallow, turn it into a suspension that's easier to swallow. The elixir as they called it, elixir sulfonilamide, was prepared by powdering the drug. Imagine I'm in an old-timey pharmacy and I'm doing it with a pestle and mortar. Oh, vintage. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. I'm adding some raspberry flavour. Delicious. (laughs) Delicious. And I'm using diethylene glycol as a solvent. Now, 
if you don't know what it is, it's commonly used in brake fluid, oh. car antifreeze, I think, lubricants and wallpaper strippers. <laughs> it's not good for your insides or maybe your outsides. Don't eat it. So you're saying forbidden snack. <laughs> no, Elise, we're not joking about this. This is deadly serious and I mean deadly. Okay, okay. So okay. the company tested their new formulation for viscosity, how thick it was for its appearance, for its fragrance, all of the important things when it comes to a medicine. But did they test its toxicity? No, because they didn't have to in 1937. Good. Mm. 105 people died across 15 states in two months. Wow. Two months? Yeah. And think of this in 1937, like how quickly things moved. Not that quickly. The elixir was found to be the common factor. So as a direct result of these deaths, which resulted in a company having a like a logical idea that I think all of us can follow the thought process and go, yeah, you were trying to do something good. But because they didn't test their um, solvent for its safety, its toxicity. People died, 105 people. And Congress, I don't know if you've heard of US Congress, Elise. Um, um, mm, <laughs> no. Passed the 1938 Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act in direct response to this. So we, less than a year later, bam, have a new piece of legislation. Interestingly, that piece of legislation is still current <laughs> for some bits of your legislative framework around food, drugs and cosmetics. Nothing like an old-timey bit of law. Yeah, it, Americans think that's great. <laughs> they love they love when old stuff is is yeah is still in fact like you know the founding fathers, the Constitution, the amendments, the the Bill of Rights, all that as like you know it it means it's good. Mm -hmm. Interesting. How how? But the internet is new. Is that good? Yeah. How, are you asking how is America doing? Uh, is that your question? Because. <laughs> I'm in a glass house in the UK and I am throwing zero stones. Yeah. Like it's, we are, mm -mm, it's not good here. No. Nope. Yeah. So this pattern, something goes terribly wrong and people die or suffer and a piece of legislation or guidance or something appears, we see throughout history. So 1937, this uh, elixir tragedy, 1938, U.S. law. So this happened in the U.S. U.S. piece of law. The Nuremberg Code you may have heard of in 1947 was written as a direct response to Nazi experimentation on concentration camp prisoners. Um, the Tuskegee syphilis study you may have heard of. It started in 1932 in the USA and ended in 1972 after a public outcry. How? That led to... Hmm, we need to get into that in detail. And there's, there's about 10,000 more examples as well. That study led directly to the Belmont Report, which was published in 1979. That led to the establishment of the Office for Human Research Protections, OHRP, and the setup of IRBs yes. to review studies to ensure human subject protection. So what we what we see through history, and there are so many more examples, and I, I honestly could talk about this all day, all night, is whether by human beings being terrible or there not being enough robust rules in place to require a level of testing or scientifically we didn't know a thing and we learned a thing whenever these tragic events happen you see the response relatively quickly usually in terms of like a scientific framework or a legislative framework or guidance or a statement from organizations saying this is how we're going to do things going forwards right those rules whether they are policy 
guidance or legislation. They exist for a reason. (laughs) And it's mostly to stop us making the same mistakes that we have in the past and to control that tiny majority of the population who deliberately do bad things. In my experience of research, so I used to be an auditor, which meant I travelled all around the world and I saw the best and worst of research practice. And most of what I saw was error, not malpractice. Right. That doesn't mean that the error doesn't have impact. What you want to do is build frameworks that minimise and reduce the chance of the error occurring and the impact if it does. And you also have to control against the small small percentage of people who are going to be doing a bad job. Intentional. Yes. Yes. Not not because they're human and they make mistakes, which yeah. <laughs> all of us do. <laughs> well, this is, yeah, this is the, this is why we can't have nice things kind of feeling, right? Of like, it'd be great if we didn't have to tell people. For sure. This, this list of rules to make sure that we don't repeat these mistakes or do these things. Um, because sometimes I think as someone who, you know, I work in the executive branch of our government, so I have to carry out the strategic mission of our governor and things through my little office and my little team. And we have so many rules applied to us that it can literally, I've mentioned this before, it can take weeks to get approval to send one email to 30 people because there are so many rules that say you can't do this, you can't do this, you have to have this person Mm. check this and all these things. And then you hear, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and so, but the flip side of that is like, I can track that back and say like, we can... We can point to all the things, all the mistakes that have been made, whether intentional, like now, you know, that which isn't a mistake or the errors that people make because we didn't Mm -hmm. know better or whatever that lead to these types of things that ultimately can sometimes feel very frustrating from the perspective of someone Mm -hmm. just trying to do their job because there can and, and. you know, I'm speaking outside my field here because this is not about clinical research, but like there can be that feeling of like, can you just let me, can you afford me a measure of trust to do my job? Right. Yeah. And I th- I think that's something that uh, the fragmentation of, of research rules and guidelines is, is the same, right? What you're saying about you can trace back and see that error happened in 1985. So then we have this rule coming in 1986. This mistake happened in 1987. So this rule came in 1988 absolutely you can do the same thing in research and i think there's it is a tightrope that we are constantly walking to make it easy to do research because research is vital and we need it to get new things available to save lives change lives etc but to keep that level of control needed because i think i said it at the top of the episode right the reason that we have rules is because the risk to humans of poorly conducted poorly controlled research is deadly yes so it's it's that it, we're walking that tightrope of risk benefit of what can we make easy and if it's if it's non-interventional research yeah we shouldn't be putting up flaming hoops for researchers to jump through but and also if you want to do an interventional study where perhaps you want to do surgery on a patient or give them an experimental drug the level of control that each of those scenario needs is different absolutely and we should be flexible to that and that that there are moves the rules exist as they are currently they do handle that differently and that needs to continue and also there's a whole bunch of stuff going on at the moment because of like technological advancements and just general scientific advancements and kind of methodological changes in research so when i was first in research ten thousand years ago (laughs) you had a protocol and you started at a and you worked through to z or z right and that was it now we're seeing way more protocols that are adaptive. So that means you'll start at A and then you'll get to F 
and there'll be a fork in the road and you can go that way or that way. And the way that you go will depend on what the data says. And that's brilliant because that's that's adapting to to what you're seeing, what's the data showing you to, to meet the patient's needs better. But if you're trying to fit the adaptive square peg in the round hole of the old fashioned A to Z protocol, you're having a bad time of it. Yeah. And so the, the, the rules, the guidelines, etc., need to also move with the times. And I personally don't think they're quick enough at doing that. Oh, and I think we see this across all areas of life, right? With AI, with social media, with everything. The rules often don't move quick enough. Absolutely. And I think they need to, to control the risk. Sure. Because unfortunately, not all human beings can be trusted to do the quote-unquote right thing because sometimes we don't even know what the right thing is yeah yes i agree i mean i i I say all the time and we use the word conservative all the time to refer to like right-wing politics and things like that but in this case you know when i say like government and regulatory bodies are fundamentally conservative i don't mean that in terms of politics i mean that in terms of they conserve and they wait and they take slow practical steps a lot of the times in terms of changing the updating with the times as you're talking about because as you've pointed out the stakes that got us to the point of having these rules in place and these things are people's lives and Mm -hmm. you know you referenced the Tuskegee syphilis study and so many other things where the long lasting impact is not just the individuals whose lives were directly impacted in their families in those examples mm-hmm. but the cultural outcome now of years hundreds of years maybe before trust in certain systems is restored among certain communities before um the sense yeah before we can make those inroads again and reestablish the kind of trust among marginalized and historically excluded groups or historically abused groups as well historically abused groups as well that for example white people white cisgender people experience the privilege of getting to walk into those spaces and not be abused and not be excluded all the time yeah Uh, so anyway the point being that like these things you know they have long arms in cultural impact and so uh there's that need to to be cautious sometimes in how we you know as i i'm saying this just to to offer the foil to my own point earlier of like it can be so frustrating to not be afforded that measure of trust or to be bound by these like 17 rules that can feel utterly ridiculous to the person who's like, I'm trying to send an email, I'm trying to do this one thing, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Versus, you know, the history that got us here and the mistakes that we're trying not to repeat and the consequences those mistakes or intentionally bad actions Mm -hmm. can have. Yeah, absolutely. I I firmly agree. Uh, And I think it's something that we're definitely going to have to, well, I want to get into it more. You know, you look at, I I have no idea how Henrietta Lacks' family want to have anything to do with the medical establishment because her cells were taken without her knowledge, without her permission. Right. And um, set up to this cell line, HALA cells that are widely, widely used, particularly in oncology, cancer research. And just the level of disregard for Henrietta Lacks as a human being. And for her family financially since then. Sure. That this this cell line is at the foundation of so much of drug discovery in certain lines that has made so much money for so many companies. And her family have not seen 
one single penny of that. No. It just sucks. It does. It's wrong. Yeah, it's wrong. And, and you know, we, like, this is, it, it speaks to things like, you know, the public health side of things where, which is my my area, right? Public health and the the struggle of finding ways to effectively outreach around, for example, vaccines for COVID into Black American communities. And the way that vaccines, like, it was harder to reach certain populations of Black Americans with vaccines for COVID because there is that distrust. And then we had, you know, and, and rightfully so, that comes from intergenerational trauma leading all the way back to things like um, the African slave trade and the enslavement of Black Americans in the U.S., as well as more current examples like um, Henrietta Lacks. And it's just, yeah, I don't know. You you know, there's the, the long arm of it is the fact that, like, we continue to see these outcomes today that continue to cause real impact mm-hmm. for communities and <clears throat> public health workers sit and scratch their heads and wonder, right, what are we supposed to do when we see these outcomes? But the, you know, the system is so stacked against, I don't know, I'm just waxing on it now. But yeah, it's it's a real ongoing problem. And this is these are the these are the impacts of those things. Right. Is yes. that today more black Americans died to COVID than white Americans because in part, not not solely, but in part because of a distrust for things like vaccines, because because of historical evidence. Yeah. Yeah. What a cheery way to end. It cheery. Is. Well, you you brought us here with your this is my favorite thing to talk. About. <laughs> yeah, because I am a morbid person. Sorry. No. But it's important. Right. It is, it is necessary. We need to talk about it all the time. Because the power structures don't want us to. Totally. Okay. So, we hope you enjoyed listening to uh, our podcast. If you have any questions or would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at clinical.research.intro at gmail.com. Please do subscribe so you get the next episode automatically. And, of course, please rate and review. You can also check out the Clinical Research 101 Instagram page at clinical.research.intro. And finally, a big thank you from us to our friend Sam Winnie for letting us use their incredible music for our intro and outro. So, uh, thanks and goodbye from me, Debbie. Say goodbye, Elise. Goodbye, Elise. Never gonna get old.